Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm uh, the senior editor of the journal Global Symmetry at the Global Symmetry Project site. It's my pleasure today to uh, welcome uh, to the studio uh, Jennifer Allen and uh, Matthew Hoffman. Uh, both of uh, my guests uh, attended the um, uh, COP25 in Madrid, and I wanted to get a first-hand reflection on the meeting uh, and results as they saw it in uh, attending this uh, annual uh, Conference of the Parties. I also wanted to explore with them, okay, so what needs to be done? Uh, for the upcoming uh, COP26, which uh, occurs in November in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, Jennifer is a writer-editor at Earth Negotiations Bulletin, and she is also a lecturer at Cardiff University. Matt Hoffman is a colleague of mine at the University of Toronto, and he is co-director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy here at the University of Toronto. So, come join me in a conversation with Jennifer Allen and uh, Matthew Hoffman. Well, welcome both of you. It's a pleasure to have you here. I was quite excited with the opportunity to speak to you both since both of you uh, attended at uh, in Madrid at COP25, and I wanted to get your impressions. So let's begin by uh, asking the obvious question: What? How do you assess the results overall? Let me start with Jen, and then we'll go to Matt. Jen. Sure. Uh, well, I can't say anyone left that room very excited, uh, <laughs> especially after sticking around for 44 hours past when they were supposed to be done. Yeah. Uh, we can't have an optimistic view of how this COP went. It failed to deliver on most of the agenda items, and I think the biggest failure was even to issue a strong call for greater climate ambition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would share that. I, I think the, the only thing I would add is... I'm not sure that – I think that the disappointment is relative to the expectations. And one of the things that I found really fascinating was that I had really low expectations going into this COP. But with the growing social movement and the youth strike movement and things along these lines, uh, a lot of people had higher expectations of it. And so I, I think actually some people in the international community have been – a little bit surprised at, at the level of disappointment. Yes, it was a it was a disappointing cop, but I'm not sure it was more disappointing than we've had cops before. And so, what's changed is the is the context. And I think that what people expect and are demanding out of the international community and out of the UN process is different now. And on that level, this was a, a horrible disappointment. Okay. Uh, I want to come back to this kind of global social movement because, Matt, in other circumstances, we've talked about this before, and I want to get a better feel as to how that might impact on going forward and, and more directly on COP26, which is in Glasgow coming up in November, but let's not leave COP25 behind yet. Um, <clears throat> how much do you think, uh, both of you, and again, we'll just start with Jen and go to Matt, how much do you think the 
uh, active withdrawal efforts of the United States and and or their presence uh, or lack of presence in um, in Madrid had um, an influence on the results of COP25. Yeah, I mean, this will be one of those things that maybe in years when someone issues some secret debrief, we'll find out exactly what the U.S. was doing behind closed doors. Um, I think the main issue with the U.S. withdrawing is that now there's no strong leadership. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a country out there, as much as the EU might be trying, there isn't a country out there trying to really pull everybody together. Mm -hmm. And and that vacuum of leadership makes it very difficult for any decisions to get made. Um, and then you actually had the U.S. doing some things that were trying to weaken some of the specific rules, even though they had one foot out the door. Uh, what were you? What are you thinking of there? Uh, well, I'm thinking of Article Six. They had. Uh, I know we'll get to probably the market mechanisms and the and the carbon markets, but the U.S. had a few ideas about how to weaken those. Mm -hmm. And uh, and some of the issues such as loss and damage, so permanent effects of climate change, they apply to the Paris Agreement and also to the Convention. And the U.S. is still a party to that. And so the U.S. is trying to get two sets of rules in that would exempt them under the Paris Agreement rules, which I know is pretty technical, but basically they were playing a bit of uh, one side against the other. Well, let's hear a bit from Matt, and then I do want to go to Article 6 because that seems to be a major... Uh, stumbling block that uh, you that was faced at COP25. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Jen's assessment there. I, I'm not sure that the U.S. Uh, withdrawal was making other countries want to do less, but I think the lack of leadership was palpable. Um, you actually had a number of countries that were working to undermine uh, what was going on at the mm -hmm, COP, mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. was part of that. And, you know, I hearken back to this. I, I've written before and argued before that I think that U.S. withdrawal, the, the problem with it is that they're, they're, the problem when Trump announced his withdrawal was that they would keep coming. And we saw the fruits of that. They kept coming. They've come to the cops and are a completely unproductive mm -hmm. uh, participant. And I think that that is damaging, not sort of in the reciprocity sense that it's driving other countries to do less. I think it's the lack of leadership and they're able to throw a monkey wrench into some of the, the processes that could be making process, progress. So uh, I take it just, you know, kind of from the strategic leadership point of view that n neither one of you thinks that anyone else particularly has stepped up, whether we're talking about the EU or we're talking about China. And there was a lot of hopes for China, although it was understood that China had made movement in part because of the bilateral agreements with the United States. But n nobody really is is kind of stepping into the place that uh, kind of the U.S. Um, had within the Paris Agreement or yeah. yeah. Also, let's not overblow the U.S. as leader. The U.S. had about two and a half okay. years of leadership on climate change. Um, and so, but I mean, I'd be really interested to hear what Jen says about this, but I, I didn't see a lot of, of leadership in general. I, the EU was uh, came out with their vision for a Green New Deal during the COP, and I think that was actually quite important. Mm -hmm. um, I think also leadership means something very different in the Paris uh, era than it did in the Kyoto era in terms of what goes on at the international negotiations, and I think that's important to keep in mind. But again, I would go back to the, the sort of the disconnect and the 
greater context that what people expect out of leadership now is different. People, the general public or segments of the general public, the social movement activists are no longer willing to accept this sort of plodding along, disappointing, not really doing much uh, cops that we've had for the last 25 years. Jen, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think it's, um, I mean, I think there was just a huge leadership vacuum and there was a huge leadership vacuum in terms of getting negotiations done, but also in terms of kind of stepping up and, and leading by doing. And that's, that's really what the social movements are calling for. They don't have patience for whether or not there's a comma or whether or not some modalities are agreed to in some uh, far off corner of an agenda item. It's our country's actually doing and leading by doing. And that's the real vacuum that we're seeing. Okay. So, so, but what you're suggesting is yes, you've got these social movements. They're tired of the kind of uh, com- broad, vague commitment. Uh, matters with respect to Paris and then obviously previously that just climate change generally. But, <clears throat> okay, so what do they do? I mean, you know, it's very nice to suggest that they're not satisfied with what we've seen to date. And certainly um, from everything we've heard, they certainly weren't satisfied with COP25. But so, okay, what's what's the next step for them? Well, I think strategically, especially in the Paris era, the, the focus has to be on national policy making mm-hmm. and even subnational policy making. And I think that you've started to see that ramp up with the Extinction Rebellion. You've started, I, I am certain that the youth climate strikes will ramp up over 2020. And so I think that given the structure of the Paris Agreement and the importance of the national contributions rather than the importance of an international agreement, uh, if I was helping strategize for any of the social movements, it would be you got to focus on national policy. You've got to essentially change the tide in multiple national capitals. Well, Jen, do you have any further thoughts on that? No, that's exactly it. The Paris Agreement puts uh, control in countries' hands, which means that's where lever points are for NGOs. Okay, well, but then if that's true, uh, you know, the, the obvious elephant in the room is, well, you know, look, I hate to uh, not that you don't know this, but, you know, social movements in China uh, don't exist. And they don't exist in large measure because the government doesn't permit it. So what, 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 where is chi- how is China going to be pressured to move forward? Well, that's the thing. And that's the, like, some countries are going to be more open to social movement pressure than others. Right. Um, and maybe then... The, the strategy is look to China's partners, look to those trading with China and, you know, maybe the e- pressure the EU to start pressuring China. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't gone particularly well in, say, human rights, um, <laughs> but at least it keeps it on the agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and I think China is of the, you know, especially if you look at of the U.S. and China, if you think about that condominium, China has been more willing to, to move forward um, than the U.S. So I think actually less pressure is needed in China. And, you know, China is on track to meet a relatively less ambitious target of peaking by 2030. And so they're 
I don't actually see China as the problem, the the, the key problem. I think that they are a, a sort of a really important piece in the puzzle. But you know, ramping up China's ambition is crucial. But I I see them having been on a trajectory of ramping that up over time, and I think that I mean. I don't want to make predictions given the yeah. volatility of the global political economy right now <laughs> and the global security situation. But, you know, setting those things aside, I think China has been on the correct trajectory for the last few years. Well, you know, I don't I don't want to, you know, kind of single out China, although, you know, it does produce a huge amount of the GHG emissions today. Uh, not historically, but in the contemporary period. But, I mean, one of the things we've seen is certainly the national government has been, you know, quite evident in it and forceful in its uh, desire to ramp down on emissions. And yet, you know, we've now, within the last two years, seen um, Mongolia opening up to ship coal uh, to uh, China uh, to use. Uh, there are new plants, uh, notwithstanding the commitment to peak, uh, new plant coal, coal fire plants being built in China, uh, not all of which necessarily have the, you know, imprimatur of uh, uh, high temperature um, boilers. Um, and, you know, there are powerful forces within the Chinese national system which are pushing back because coal is a major employer uh, for a number of different provinces. So, so you know, may, maybe let, let, let's see if you have any thoughts on that. But then I want to talk about one particular mechanism that might be uh, might be useful. But do, do you guys see it as I have with respect to to China? Well, I think a lot of what you just pointed to could be applied to a lot of other countries. Sure, sure. I mean, look at Australia right now. Uh, the recent production gap report showed that most major economies are actually increasing their investment in fossil fuels. Yes, totally agree. So a lot of these, uh, you know, now called just transition issues are are pretty widespread. And, and China's really facing the the same sorts of pressures that other major economies are. Right, and I, t I take your point on that. It's not as if uh, it isn't. Unfortunately, of course, China is a lot bigger on the GHG emissions than a lot of these other countries. And that, you know, notwithstanding Australia, Australia doesn't produce, I mean, it, it exports coal. Sure, well, and, but China's also engaged in the global economy, and so in the global economy, I mean, China's going to shift as well. Sure. And also... I don't think that the domestic political constraints around air pollution and things along these lines are going to go away. Are going to go away for China, mm -hmm. and so I think that that some of the reason that China started to take some leadership in the um, 2010 to 2018 uh, uh, era, you know, some of those reasons are still there. Okay, that's fair. I guess the one additional question I wanted to ask of both of you was: there any discussion um, at COP twenty five or among some of the uh, delegations around the question? I mean, there's been a long standing discussion about uh, trade and environment, uh, and you know the the question about using uh, uh, taxation uh, at the border 
uh, for goods and services coming from countries where they're ex- uh, quite lax with respect to the use of um, fossil fuels. And I wondered whether there was any discussion yet of that or that that's, remains premature. I guess I would characterize that kind of a conversation around uh, the border tax adjustments mm-hmm. as something that used to be kind of this heretical idea, this weird idea that some people might have thought up. And now it's being at least whispered by some serious people. Uh, it's certainly not in the formal negotiation space. I don't think it ever would be. Uh, but it's it's a conversation now, especially around U.S. withdrawal and, and the need for, say, the EU to remain competitive, that there's some serious people at least, you know, thinking about this idea. Okay. Yeah, that's how I would uh, read it as well. I, I think we're, we're quite a ways from it um, being a practical policy solution. Okay. So it, it, we'll wait to see how that begins to uh, devolve. And, I mean, I, I presume in part it relates to – you know, whether the WTO is completely uh, cut off at the knees or not, not, yeah. not related to so much to environment, but more generally on trade reform and dispute resolution. But let, let's go back and uh, to finish up this segment and uh, to look at Article 6. What is this debate in our, uh, of Article 6, which I take it is the Paris Climate Change Accord? It's Article 6 from there. Uh, what's that all about? And what is the, what was the problem that emerged here? at uh, COP25 on it. Oh, gosh, what wasn't a problem? <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's three parts to Article 6, but only two were really talked about. One was if you could have these things called ITMOs, uh, so basically a credit mm-hmm. that one country would generate if it reduced emissions or avoided some emissions, and another country could buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second was a more formal mechanism, kind of like the clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol, but maybe with a different scope and a different scale of action. Mm-hmm. But again, meant for this buying and selling of credits. Um, and there's just a whole host of decisions to be made around how to design this, because you have to balance uh, main, like safeguards for the environment, safeguards for human rights, uh, with the need to ensure that the credits actually match up to some emissions that were actually reduced and will stay reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that you have to make it easy enough that countries actually could do this. If it's a huge bureaucratic exercise, no one's going to participate. And so you've set this thing up for nothing. Um, and so countries were really struggling to balance those. And one of the main sticking points was that a few countries, uh, mostly Australia and Brazil were the most vocal on this. Yes. They they wanted to use the credits that they've earned in the past, uh, dating back to 1998 with the Kyoto Protocol. They wanted to use all those credits uh, uh, to meet their pledges under the Paris Agreement. And a lot of countries said, well, that's frankly making it a bit too easy, and it's going to reduce your climate ambition overall. So they didn't want that to happen. Um, and that was one of the final sticking points that was still getting pushed through. And, and that's one of the main reasons why the talks failed. So they didn't agree to anything on Article 6. Uh, they agreed that they would keep talking about it. And, and a lot of vulnerable countries were saying no agreement was a win for them because they held the line on, on environmental integrity. Mm-hmm. To them, no deal was better than a bad deal, which was on the table. Mm-hmm. 
Matt, anything further? No, Jen's the expert on this one. I, I don't. <laughs> that, that's that's exactly sort of. I don't have anything to add, yeah. other than to, to emphasize what she said at the end here is that as disappointing as it might be to not have an agreement with more ambition, actually, uh, I agree with those countries that that argued that no agreement here was a better outcome than a bad Article Six. So mm-hmm. I, I take it from both of you that, in effect, we've seen it being punted, I take it, uh, to the next COP, uh, the, that is the COP26 in Glasgow, um, uh, rather than try to, you know, resolve it badly in, in Madrid. Yeah, and I actually worry, I worry that Article 6 is going to derail the whole thing. And I think that hmm. Article 6 misses the point. Um, the If if Glasgow's about Article 6, we're in deep trouble because Glasgow needs to be about serious revisions and ratcheting up of the nationally determined contributions, not about um, emissions credit trading. So you don't see it as the primary issue. Uh, Jen? No, I mean, I think it's a bit of a tempest in a teapot. Uh, There's been some studies to even show that there's probably not going to be a ton of demand for these credits anyways, other than the aviation sector. Uh-huh. And so we're we're putting an awful lot of time and effort into designing something that uh, may not be used all that much. Is it intentional? Is it a way of avoiding some of the uh, critical issues? I think it's because it's the last issue uh, related to the Paris Agreement or one of the last issues on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were supposed to agree to it last year in Katowice and couldn't. And so it's it's that standout issue where now, because it's supposed to be finished, they keep sort of setting themselves a deadline. And once there's a deadline, people pay more attention to it. Mm-hmm. But some other issues that I think are far more important, like having common timeframes, a common length of time for the climate pledges, uh, is far more important for climate ambition than a market mechanism. Yeah. Would you agree with that, Oh, I, I entirely agree. And I, I think that we're spending a lot of time thinking about this around the COP because also with the Paris Agreement, there's less, frankly, that is being decided at the international level. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the the Tempest and the, the tea the teacup that Jen referred to <laughs> is exactly right. But and whether or not it's intentional, the the outcome is is that we're we're focusing because of the nature of COPs and the international negotiating cycles. We're focusing on the diminishing amount of things that are being decided at the COP rather than on the national level, rather than at the national level. And I think that that's a that's a real problem. So are we saying in your discussions here uh, in Article 6 that we and and this common, let's say, the common framework for examining the NDCs that we that the rule book really has not yet been finalized is this you know because we were supposed to get this rule book where everybody was kind of on the same page in terms of the way in which they um undertook their ndcs yeah most of it's done mm-hmm. uh, article 6 is the standout um and then common time frames was actually never supposed to be folded into this it wasn't uh, okay. it wasn't because it's been treated differently because parties have really divergent and strong views on it so it was sort of pulled outside of the usual uh sort of rule book negotiations and and given its own 
timeline where it wasn't supposed they weren't supposed to start talking about it until the Paris Agreement entered into force. And then the Paris Agreement became the fastest agreement to ever enter into force. Right. And so they realized, oh, we have to start about this sooner than we thought. Um, so now we're talking about it, which is good, but oh my gosh, those negotiations went backwards at the last COP. Yeah. So it'll be a little while. Okay. And backwards in what sense, Jen? Well, they used to have a piece of paper that at least had five options that said, okay, here's the options we're going to talk about for how long uh, NDC should last five years, 10 years, maybe sort of a hybrid five plus five deal. Mm-hmm. And then, then they blew that up. I think at one point there was over 10 options or 12 on the table. And then they left with zero options. So uh, even from a technical negotiating standpoint, we definitely move backwards. Okay. So uh, you know, moving over to, in effect, COP26, uh, would, would the two of you agree that the, the lack of clear agreements, at least with respect to Article 6, if not other things, means the stakes are significantly higher now with respect to Glasgow uh, and um, COP26 or – we're just chugging along. What, what's happening here? Well, I think the, the stakes for COP26 were high no matter what was going to happen, no matter what happened at Madrid. I'm not um, – again, I was surprised. Um, COP25 was never meant to have that much going on, frankly. Oh. And uh, – the, the stakes have always been very high around Glasgow because this is when the ratcheted uh, revised NDCs are supposed to, to come online. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure that the failure in COP25 increases the urgency around COP26 except for the fact that we didn't even get really a statement about increased ambition. From any of the countries. Right. And what that was hoped that was hoped for? Uh, I mean, I think given the, the global context, that you know, this is this is certainly what a lot of people hoped for that the international process would start to take this as seriously as as they should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jen, any further thoughts on on where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, Glasgow. I think I think the stakes were always going to be high. I think they might be higher now because more people are going to be paying attention. Okay. And and I think the the demand has crystallized into words like climate emergency, more finance, more ambition. Mm -hmm. And and those are the things that at COP twenty five countries showed themselves to be remarkably deaf to. Um, and so if, if they don't learn how to, how to listen pretty quickly and respond to that, then, then gosh, I mean, fresh out of Brexit, the UK might have a tough, a tough go of it. Yeah. Uh, you mean in terms of their capacity to, to lead the, to lead the yeah. COP itself? Yeah. I mean, they've, <coughs> me. they've been part of the EU for, well, a very long time. Plus years. Yes. Exactly. For the whole history of the UNF, uh, climate negotiations. Yeah. And so, now they're in a position where they're developing their own climate policies that may or may not be independent from the EU or separate from the EU. Mm-hmm. They're building their diplomatic capacity specifically on climate, and they're going to be leading the COP while they're also sorting out how to leave the EU. Maybe Scotland. Uh, maybe. <laughs> or Wales. Wales. That's or Wales. Wales could be the, the next leader here. Yeah, we declared a climate emergency. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
Well, let, let's just, you know, we've looked at, uh, at COP26 a little bit, and we talked about China and the back and forth on China. Let me just, did you have a sense, either of you, that, you know, the consequences of watching Australia burn had any impact on, uh, you know, Australia's, let's call it its official position, but more generally social groups in Australia, because there would be an example of, you know, the real imp- the impact of climate change being f- felt on a daily basis. Yeah, I think the, uh, the impact is yet to be felt on official policy. In fact, they're sort of doubling down on, right. on not doing things on climate change. But I think that that's ultimately, I mean, I have to hope that that's ultimately a losing political strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, with the, the kind of uh, parliamentary government that they have, uh, unless there is a revolt within the Liberal Party and the Liberal, the Liberal National Coalition in Australia, you're, you might not see that. Now, whether they can survive uh, sort of a mass change in, in urgency or that's in the – is at least one of the potential outcomes from from this disaster, uh, this ongoing and unfolding catastrophe. Uh, I don't know. The thing with these crises is that everybody wants to talk about the climate connection while they're happening, and yeah. then six months down the road, it's remarkably quiet. Yeah. And so you know we saw that with Hurricane Katrina, for example. Um, so it's it's going to be. You know, maybe against social movements, maybe other actors to try to keep hammering home this link and and to push ideas like building back better, yeah. building back more climate resilient than you were before. Um, explore that a little bit. I mean, it's evident that what used to be a kind of singular talk at one point on mitigation has now become a much broader discussion about adaptation resilience as well as mitigation is is that what you're really speaking to yeah i mean there's really kind of three phases now is it was mitigation for a long time and then you know we realized well we haven't been very good at that so now we have to start (laughs) adapting yes uh and building more resilience and then we realized well we haven't been great at that either uh and so now we're in that loss and damage world okay where there are permanent effects of climate change and that could be uh, lives lost or economic activities lost because of, say, a wildfire, mm-hmm. or it could be the permanent effects of sea level rise. Mm-hmm. And so with these sort of rapid events or slow onset events that will have permanent effects, the conversations are, okay, some of these you can build back after. You can build back after after a wildfire. How do you build back with more climate resilience? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's something that developing countries have been saying we need help with for a very long time. And that's why conversations around how do we finance these sorts of activities were really a hot topic at the COP. And and developing countries want to talk about this and they want to talk about adaptation and they're getting stonewalled in a lot of cases. Um, and so now maybe that it's happening to Australia, there might be more open ears, but it's um, – it's something that shows all countries in an increasingly climate dangerous world are going to have to deal with. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think we're we're seeing that the the loss and damage world that Jen's talking about there mm-hmm. 
is really the fusing of, of adaptation and mitigation into things like just transition, like Green New Deals, where we're really trying to where the where the ideas are about how do we create a more sustainable world, which includes sort of adaptation and mitigation. What does a what does a just low carbon world look like? Okay, that's fair. Let, let, I wanted to end on on one last country, and that's Canada. Uh, it seemed reasonable to do. I mean, you know, at the rhetorical level, Canada seems to be A-OK. And yet, you know, we have public policy. It may be perfectly understandable, but public policy, particularly out west, where we're talking about, you know, enhancing pipelines to the export of fossil fuels, it's part of public policy there. You know, how much longer can Canada continue, in effect, to suck and blow if I can use that expression, on this particular, on climate change, because that's what we're talking about in terms of at least federal policy. Yeah, Canada is a great microcosm for that production gap report I mentioned. Yes. Uh, on one hand, we say we're doing climate change action, and on the other hand, we're building pipelines. Um, you know, I think I think other countries sort of view Canada as... Um, a sort of a date that you wish you had, <laughs> like, uh, you know, as a country that you really wish would come to the table and and show some leadership, uh, be more like Norway. Um, and, and I think mostly other countries have just sort of said, OK, well, that's probably not going to happen. Um, maybe they're hopefully will be proved wrong. And, and everyone's certainly very happy that Canada is doing more than it used to mm-hmm. and that Canada is more constructive <clears throat> at the cops than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think it's I think in some cases that patience has run out. Yeah. And I think that that's true domestically, too. <clears throat> I think that um, the time frame for the liberal government to continue this walking both sides of the line mm-hmm. is rapidly coming to an end because, uh, you know, they survived an election with a climate plan, which is, you know, remarkable. And I don't want to downplay that success, but I, I just don't think that the walking both sides of that line is going to be tenable politically for four years, um, given the kind of climate impacts that we've seen, given the kind of urgency around climate change. And frankly, given the cleavages between climate action and the political forces that want to see expanded fossil energy extraction. And so at some point, they're not going to be able to, they're going to have to make a choice. Um, and I, I hope they make the right one. Hmm. Well, much serious thought <laughs> to be had at both the national level and still at the international level. I want to thank you both. Uh, for joining us here um, uh, to talk about uh, both COP25 and 26. Thank you, Jen, and thank you, Matt. Yeah, thank and you appreciate too. it. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Okie dokie.